Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! It's that part of the week where we get a little bored with life down on planet Earth. So we head off, we go exploring. If you fancy that, welcome to a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Explorers Assemble, thank you for being there. My name is Dan, this is the show where we search around the solar system and beyond to find some science secrets. This week, we'll carry on the quest to discover the greatest science around, heading to Sweden to learn about human-animal studies and rats. Human-animal studies is to a large extent about uh, recognising the value that animals have in society and and how uh, we humans live together with animals. Why a dog waves his tail when the owner comes home. Also, you can hear how dinosaurs become fossils. So as the bone continues to rot and decompose for millions of years, all of these minerals replace what used to be part of the dinosaur until we just have basically a bone-shaped rock left behind for paleontologists to dig up. And we'll travel to one of the deepest parts of the ocean in our brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news then. A tiny, transparent, see-through fish that makes a sound as loud as a pneumatic drill has been discovered in Berlin. This is strange. They found that the fish, Danianella cerebrum, drums out a really powerful rhythm on its organ inside it called a swim bladder. Now, in the waters close to the fish, it taps out 140 decibels, which is as loud as a firework. It's tiny as well, 12 millimetres, which is like half of your finger. Researchers found that this species is the loudest fish for its size yet. They believe that the drumming, tap, 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 uh, might be them talking to each other. And that's what I love about science. We're not just focused on the big questions, what's in the universe, how do we save the planet, that kind of thing. We're also looking at why these tiny fish make such a huge noise. Also, the birth of a monkey at a zoo has been called a sign of hope because it's an endangered species. The baby, Francois Langer, was born in February at Whipsnade Zoo in the UK. The zookeepers said that the team are ecstatic because the mother was spotted cradling her bright orange baby. They didn't really know much about it happening and the bright colour made it easier for the keepers and visitors to spot the new attraction to the zoo. It's amazing. You can find pictures of it online. It is so bright, so vivid and it's wonderful to see some species flourishing when we give them help in zoos. And let's get more about the story of one of our most important satellites. It's burnt up in the Earth's atmosphere and it was planned. Dara Patel from the National Space Centre joins us. Dara, lovely to have you back. This is the ERS-2 spacecraft. Why has it been so important through history? Yeah, so ERS stands for the European Remote Sensing 2 satellite because it did have its predecessor, the ERS-1. 
And it's a satellite that was launched by the European Space Agency back in 1995. And it was designed to basically help us understand the Earth system. So it was looking at things like uh, different land surfaces. It was looking at ocean temperatures and the ozone layer and you know, polar ice on our surface. It was even used to help sort of monitor and assist with uh, responses to natural disasters. And the fact is that this satellite was only planned to work for about three years, yet it was used for 16 years before they decided to deorbit it. So it's done a lot of incredible work and given us very long-term data as to how the Earth system has changed. It's interesting it was only planned for three years. I mean, satellites, I would imagine, are expensive bits of kit and it lasted for 16 years. What do we know about the typical shelf life of a satellite? How long do we expect them to go for? Yeah, so satellites, you know, when they're planned, they're planned based on, I guess, the the science that wants to be conducted within them. So for this particular satellite, it was probably that initial plan of three years. But satellites are reliant, I guess, on fuel, if that's what they're using, or solar power to keep their batteries operational. So even though it may have been planned for three years, the fact that the instrumentation kept working and there was still power available for the satellite means that the scientists could make use of this satellite for even longer than they'd originally planned. And it was first set up almost 30 years ago now. What has taken its place? How much has satellite technology advanced in the last three decades? Yeah, at the time that the ERS-2 was launched, uh, along with the ERS-1, they were the most sophisticated satellites that had had been developed by the Europeans and launched by them as well. And what this satellite set has done, I guess, is pave the way and lay the groundwork for many success emissions. So the data that's been coming back from ERS has actually informed us of actually we want to look at this particular thing on the Earth or actually we should be monitoring this. And satellite technology has changed. These satellites were developed in the 1980s. So one of the things with this satellite is it didn't have a controlled mechanism to help it become deorbited. And so when the satellite was deorbited, it was done through what we call natural processes or natural re-entry. Many satellites today, especially ESA satellites that are focused on that sort of zero debris approach, will have things and technologies in place to help make sure that they control that re-entry when the satellite comes to an end. And this one, you said the natural approach. So just like letting gravity take over and keeping your fingers crossed, I would imagine. How much of a risk is there with just letting a massive satellite fall to Earth and hoping it burns up completely in our atmosphere? Yeah, there is. When we say natural, you know, um, we get get the satellites down and deorbit it enough from its higher altitude to a point where what we call atmospheric drag takes over. So we think of the atmosphere and it's very thick here where we are at sea level and the atmosphere thins as we get higher and higher up. But actually, even at those altitudes where some of these satellites are orbiting, including things like the International Space Station, there is enough drag to slow these spacecraft down. Think about it like you've got um, a convertible car and you're, you're zooming down the motorway and that wind is blowing through your hair. Those satellites experience something similar and that slows them down eventually over time. So it's not a surprise. And we've actually seen through, you know, the the 60 odd years of space flight, satellites the size of ERS-2 and even larger have actually deorbited and landed back down on Earth. 
But what we have to remember is that, number one, there has been rare damage reported from satellites re-entering, and there's no actually recorded accounts of people being injured or killed by satellites re-entering. A lot of the world is actually unpopulated. So when we think about the vast oceans, vast deserts across the world, the likelihood of these satellites causing major damage isn't too big, but it's something that we still need to be very much aware of. Amazing. It's always good to chat. Uh, Dara Patel from the National Space Centre, thank you for joining us. It's always great to chat to Dara. She's a proper like friend of the show. She's always on, always here, letting us know fantastic things that are happening out in space. Can't wait to chat to her again. Uh, I tell you what, let's get to some of your questions, shall we? My favourite part of the show, really. When I do the digging on any question that you have sent over as a voice note to the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com, if it's sciencey, we will take it and we'll find the answer together. Uh, first up, it's from Andrew. Why do slugs die when they get salt on them? Oh, it's a bit grim, this one, Andrew, isn't it? A bit gruesome. Well, salt kills slugs because salt absorbs water. It attracts it. It sucks it towards it. Now, slugs are slimy, right? The problem with the slime is it's easy for things inside the slug to go outside and easy for things outside the slug to go in. Now, if you put salt near a slug, and don't do this, it's incredibly mean, it sucks all the water that's inside the slug out of it. It absorbs it, completely dries it out. And more or less, everything on planet Earth needs water to live. So a slug without water is very dehydrated. And sadly, it doesn't live much longer. So a bit gruesome, but it's amazing to find out these things, Andrew. Thank you for giving us the chance to look that up. Let's get another one on. This is a voice note. It's been sent in from Zoe. How did dinosaur bones turn into fossils? Because they were fossils. Zoe, thank you very much for that question. How did dinosaur bones turn into fossils? We can find out with Reagan Douglas, who is a paleontologist, author at dinosaurs.org, who joins us. Reagan, thank you so much for being there. So dinosaur bones from millions of years ago. What conditions does the world need to be in for us to get fossils? The conditions usually are just, at first, of course, the animal has to die. Um, that is always step number one to becoming a fossil. But a lot of animals that were alive at the time don't become fossils. We have very few fossils compared to how many animals were alive millions of years ago. And that's because the very first thing that has to happen is that they have to be buried very quickly. And especially with things like dinosaurs that lived on land, that just doesn't happen as often as it does in the oceans with fish and shells and things. So we've got a, a, a dead dinosaur normally a dinosaur, it gets buried very quickly under a lot of earth. And then what's happening to turn it into this fossil that we can dig up hundreds of millions of years later? Yeah, when these bones are underground, they're surrounded by rocks and a lot of water underground. And this water has all these minerals in it from the surrounding rocks. And the bones soak this water up like a sponge and the minerals that are in the water get left behind. So as the bone continues to rot and decompose for millions of years, all of these minerals replace what used to be part of the dinosaur until we just have basically a bone-shaped rock left behind for paleontologists to dig up. Oh, so when we see a dinosaur fossil, we're not actually seeing that dinosaur. We're seeing what the minerals that the water has left behind uh, kind of pretending to be it. 
Yes, exactly. So it's basically like um, we call it replacement because every single thing that is part of the dinosaur is replaced over time with silica or calcium, different minerals that are in the water. Right. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. And it makes a lot more understandable why these things can last millions of years later. That process, because we have found fossils from dinosaurs, you know, 60, 80, 100 million years later. How long does it actually take to make a fossil? It really depends on the type of environment that it's buried in. So if you get something that's buried in the perfect environment, which is something we usually call like an anoxic lake, it's a water with really little oxygen to sort of make bacteria grow that will rot the bones. These things don't take very long. We can have these things that we call subfossils up to 10,000 years old. So anything that died like reindeer or mammoths, Sometimes if they were only 10,000 years old, we still call them a subfossil because there's still organic material behind, which is why you can do things like test these bones for DNA. But you can't really do that with dinosaurs because there's really no DNA left on a lot of these fossils that we have. So 10,000 years is a subfossil. At what point, at what stretch of time do we say, right, we got ourselves a fossil? Really any time beyond that. And honestly, if you ask a paleontologist, there's a lot of people who don't love the term subfossil because it kind of is just a blurry line of where do you decide that something is a fossil versus not a fossil. It's, it's hard to tell sometimes. But once you start getting older than 10,000 years, that's definitely a fossil for sure. Is there a point where it's finalized? Like if we didn't dig up the dinosaur fossils that we have so far, if they were left in the ground for another million years, would they change much at all? Or do they kind of, are they around for hundreds of thousands of years down there and then they're just, they're, they're fixed? Yeah. Once the fossilization process is complete, for the most part, they don't really change much unless it's like if you're in an area with mountains and things if you're changing the rocks in that area as these mountains form and, and basically squish everything around, the fossils will get squished too. And so you do sometimes see these deformations happen, we call them. But as far as the fossil itself goes, once it's been replaced, it's pretty much set to be a fossil for the rest of its life. Well, we've done it. We've completed it. Zoe, thank you for your question. That is how you get a fossil. Reagan Douglas from dinosaurs.org. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Thank you very much to Reagan for helping us answer Zoe's question. That's a brilliant thing about the questions now. If there is anything you want answered by a proper expert in that field, we will find them. So make sure you leave your question as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. And let's go exploring now, shall we? And do this week's Dangerous Dan. We are headed deep down into the ocean. I'm talking way down to the Tonga Trench. You'll find it in the Pacific Ocean. It stretches between Fiji and New Zealand, really. It's near the island of Tonga. 
It's the second deepest trench on Earth after the Mariana Trench, which has been on our Dangerous Down list before. The tectonic plate moves incredibly quickly next to each other there too. These two enormous slabs of Earth and they slide and grind next to each other. There's this massive cavern between them and that's the trench we're talking about. It's part of the Pacific Ring of Fire which is a circle of high volcanic and tectonic activities that goes around half the world, really. We're talking earthquakes and tsunamis. The deepest part of the Tonga Trench is almost 11 kilometres, 11,000 metres beneath sea level. Very few people know what's down there. Only a handful have travelled down that far. And listen to this. In the dark depths, strange see-through glow-in-the-dark fish linger. Even radioactive parts of the Apollo 13 rocket fell to Earth and they lie somewhere down there. So because it's so deep, so dark and so unknown, the Tonga Trench goes straight on to our dangerous stand list. Let's get another expert on in our battle of the sciences. Geniuses from all around the world who will try to prove that their field of expertise should come first. Today we're headed to Sweden with Tobias Lina from Lund University who is here to tell us why human animal studies should be number one. Tobias, you have one minute to kick us off and tell us why human animal studies is better than the rest in three, two, one. Take it away. Okay, so first of all, human animal studies. Studying this field, of course, gives me a chance to interact with animals often with cute animals. And I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? So not only can I interact with these animals in my field, but I also get to help them uh, because human animal studies is to a large extent about uh, recognizing the value that animals have in society and, and how uh, we humans live together with animals. And there's so many interactions that we have with animals on a daily basis that we we seldom think about them. And I get to study these and uh, try to understand, you know, why a dog waves his tail when the owner comes home, uh, what he's trying to say with that. Uh, So that would be my my answer. And that is your minute, Tobias. That's a brilliant, actual, a perfect minute there. And it's raised a lot of questions. So in this type of science, with what you do every day, what are the questions involving? What are the experiments that you're doing? Is it a case of you watching and looking? Are you getting hands-on at all? How does it work day to day? Yeah. So, for example, I could do a study that looks at how... Uh, certain uh, animals are treated as family members. So, for example, a dog, uh, which we often see as a, as a family member. I uh, could uh, do a study where I go out and I stay with, with people who have dogs and I hang out with them and I look, you know, how are they treating their dog? Like, what are they feeding their dog? How do they talk to their dog? Like, what do they do with the dog? Like, how is the the animal, or it could be a cat, of course, or, or any, any uh, pet animal. So how are they involved in the day-to-day uh, life of their humans? Uh, so that could be uh, one example. Another example could be that I follow a team of uh, animal rescuers who are, you know, helping take care of injured uh, wild animals. And I follow them around and I watch what they do. I ask them questions, you know, why they do what they do and what they think about what they're doing. And yeah, so I, so I get a sense of how 
these people help animals, but also, you know, what kind of problems there are for wild animals in urban environments, for example. Some brilliant examples. If you're thinking back, what are you really proud of learning and what research have you taken on with human animal studies that has given you and the rest of the world quite a lot of new information that perhaps no other science would have shared? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think so. One of my most recent projects has been about rats. Uh, so wild rats, brown rats, Norway rats, sometimes they're called uh, that. Uh, so I'm interested in these animals because they live in the city with us, but they're also very often despised by many people. Uh, many people fear them. I actually think they are misunderstood. So I want to, you know, um, in this project, I want to go deeper into looking at, you know, the relationship between humans and wild rats in urban environments. So what are the conflicts and how can those conflicts, you know, be resolved? Uh, so uh, maybe some people feel that, you know, rats shouldn't be in certain places, but they can be in other places. Maybe there is something that we can do in the city to, to keep away these animals from certain places and rather, you know, have them stay in another place. Tavius, just thinking to the future, so that was a bit about the past and what you've done, but if we look ahead, say 50 years, what is one question that you would really like to answer that you think only human animal studies could help us solve? Well, I think human animal studies is needed for us in order to understand how animals think. I mean, that's a huge task, you know, to be able to understand how, how another, not only, you know, another human, but another species of animal, how they think, how they view us. I hope that with uh, technology, for example, um, we have in AI, uh, we see now a lot of research going into things that can help translate, you know, what animals are actually saying to us. So I think that is something that I think human animal studies will be able to give a good, lots of knowledge about, you know, how do animals perceive us as humans? Wouldn't that be interesting to know what your dog is thinking about you or what your cat is thinking about you? It's a brilliant case for a, a science that we've not heard too much about. And I'm very excited that we've had it expanded on human animal studies with Tobias Lina from Lund University. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Dan. It was really nice. Thank you. A lot of fun heading over to Sweden to chat to Professor Tobias Lina. And well, he was talking all about uh, biology, right? And humans and animals, how we interact with each other. Let's find out more with an episode from our series, Marina Ventura. She knows all about biology, knows everything about what's happening inside you, inside other animals and how we all talk together. Today, she's inside a bird's nest, figuring out how animals' homes aren't that different to ours. Marina Ventura inside biology with the Society of Biology. Hold on tight again today we're finding out about animal homes they generally have a few things in common with our homes i'll show you what i mean animals need the same things as us somewhere safe to rest to look after their babies and to shelter in if the weather is bad if we look up high in these trees we can see a bird's favorite home a nest let's climb up a little to see 
Each species of bird has its own style of nest. This is a magpie's nest. It's a spiky mass of twigs, grass and leaves. Just like houses, nests come in all sorts of shapes, though. Some are like platforms, others are like cups, and you'll even find some in the ground or in the nook of a building. But they all do the same job, to make a warm, dry place where the predators can't get to them. Let's go back down. There might be sleeping baby magpies in there. Another cool thing is that birds are great recyclers. Man-made materials like plastic, fabrics and even paper are sometimes used in nest-making. At the base of the tree, there's another cool animal home. It's a badger set. That's the name for their huge underground burrow. We can just see one of the holes that leads in. Did you know badgers are amazing at housework? Don't believe me? Check this out. This pile of leaves and moss outside the entrance to the set looks a bit like it's been made by a person, but actually it's the badger. He's brought his bedding outside to air, a bit like putting it on the washing line. Amazingly, sets also have a separate latrine, or an area that's used as a loo, so they have their own ensuite bathroom. I wonder if MapApp has any other fantastic facts about animal homes. Of course, I'll get beavering away on a great fact. The electronic essential for every explorer. And it's all about beavers. They're mammals that live around water. Although beavers are pretty rare in Britain, they're responsible for some of the most amazing animal homes of all. Dams. Beavers use trees, mud and stones to make a type of moat where they can use their swimming skills to evade any predators. They often work together to create huge safe areas for their communities. And one of the biggest dams ever made is so enormous it can be seen from space. Astonishing as it sounds, the dam in Canada, which is a massive three kilometres long, was snapped by satellites taking pictures of the Earth. It's thought it has taken nearly 30 years for the beavers to build it. Amazing! Time for us to go, but we'll see you next time. In the meantime, find out more at funkidslive.com forward slash biology. Marina Ventura Inside Biology with the Society of Biology. Hold on tight. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all the guests for coming on the podcast. If you have a question that you want answered by me or are an absolute expert in the field next week on the show, make sure you leave us a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. You heard from Marina Ventura today. We've got loads more brilliant series and podcasts that you can get wherever you get your shows. Google, Apple, Spotify, anything like that. It's on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com too. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station. You can hear us all over the country on the free app over on funkidslive.com and if you've got a smart speaker wake it up and ask it to play fun kids
Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!